Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. You ever had your bell rung? Maybe seen stars, got an old knock on the head? We're talking, of course, about concussions, something that we're learning a lot more about, particularly in the past decade or two. And today to help guide us through that subject is Dr. Heather McKenzie. She's a physiatrist in the Acquired Brain Injury Program and St. Joseph's Parkwood Institute. She's an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of concussions and rehabilitation therapies to help those who are suffering from persistent concussion symptoms. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. McKenzie. Thank you for having me. Let me, I'll just start with the physiatrist thing. It's interesting that last week I'd never heard of this term before, and then we spoke to a Dr. Caitlin Cassidy with the Transitional and Lifelong Care Program, and she is a physiatrist too. So again, just for our listeners, a physiatrist is someone who sort of cares for patients with impaired functional abilities. Is that um, correct? Yeah, so a physiatrist, sometimes we're confused for psychiatrist or Mm. physicist or (laughs) physiotherapist, but we are medical doctors and we specialize in typically the non-surgical management of brain, muscle, tendon, bone issues Mm. that result in functional impairments. So we really do focus on functional recovery and patient goals and helping them work towards those goals after injury or illness. Right. And we're talking about concussions. Now, I know that the numbers, it's probably difficult to ascertain exactly how many people suffer concussions. We've got, I've got a stat here from the Brain Injury Canada, and they suggest that about 200,000 Canadians suffer a concussion each year. Does that sound accurate to you? Yes, yeah, it is a very common Mm -hmm. type of injury, uh, likely one of the most common neurological injuries that people in the general population may be exposed to. And a concussion, of course, I guess, results from a strike to the head. But tell me, so what is a concussion? In my understanding, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the concussion is often caused by the movement of the brain within the skull. Yes, yes. So a concussion is a type of traumatic brain injury. And we would typically categorize these as being a mild traumatic brain injury, Hmm. although the way that it impacts a person is not necessarily mild. And like you said, it's typically caused by a hit to the head, although it can be caused by impacts to the neck or other parts of the body that transmit forces to the head, and essentially is the result of the brain moving inside the skull. And then I assume that there are various degrees of concussions? Yeah, certainly there can be varying levels of severity of injury, even amongst persons who would fall under that category of concussion. Yes. Right. So what are some of the symptoms of a concussion? In terms of the symptoms, immediately after the injury, a person might 
have a brief loss of consciousness, although this isn't necessary. Someone can have a concussion without any loss of consciousness. Right. They may have symptoms of confusion or disorientation or maybe even some memory loss immediately after the mm -hmm. injury. And then, you know, in the days, weeks, sometimes months that follow, the symptoms and signs that a person experiences can span multiple domains. So they can be physical, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. And then how does one diagnose a concussion? If someone goes to the hospital, is there some test to determine if you've actually suffered a concussion? So a concussion is a clinical diagnosis, uh, which means that there is no blood test. There is no image of the brain that can be taken that tells us whether someone had a concussion. The diagnosis is made by a clinician, usually a physician, who asks questions and does a physical examination with the patient and develops an understanding of that particular person's injury and the mechanism behind it, what their early signs and symptoms might be, and the results of any investigations that were done. Individuals may undergo brain imaging with a CT or an MRI, but that isn't used to diagnose concussion as much as it is used to rule out other more severe brain injuries or alternative diagnoses. So essentially there is no test for a concussion. Right. And again, I know that the answer is going to depend on the severity, I guess, of the injury. But how long can, we talked about some of the, the symptoms, as you said, both behavioral and emotional and physical, but how long can these symptoms sometimes persist? So for most people, fortunately, the symptoms don't persist very long. Most people will recover within the first days and weeks after their injury. Right. But we do know that a subset of people who have had a concussion will develop what we call persistent or prolonged symptoms. And as medical professionals, we define that as symptoms that last longer than three months after an injury. Okay. And unfortunately, some people will have symptoms that last years or mm. can, in some cases, be permanent. Well, first of all, if you have had a concussion, should you go to the hospital or can you simply kind of stay at home and wait it out and heal on your own? Yeah, so I think, you know, it certainly depends on how a person is feeling right. immediately after their injury. Because if someone has had an injury to the head, you know, it may not be immediately clear whether it is a concussion or something more serious. So certainly anyone who is worried about having had an injury to the head, they should consider presenting for medical attention. Right. For most people, there isn't anything that needs to be done emergently in, in the emergency department, for example. So it isn't necessary to present to the emergency department for your concussion. It's more so mm. to rule out any concurrent injuries or a more severe brain injury. Right. And so patients should always feel welcome to attend either their doctor's office or the emergency department or urgent care if they have concerns about their health after a head injury. But if they're feeling reasonably well and don't feel concerned about a more severe injury, it is something that can typically be managed in the community through their family physician's office mm -hmm. during those initial days to weeks. Okay. Is it a myth? I know growing up, I'd always heard that, oh, if you have a concussion, don't go to sleep. Is that true or false? Yeah, so we, we don't usually recommend that people need to stay awake or be disturbed throughout their sleep. Again, that would be to protect someone from missing a more severe brain injury. Right. 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 Yeah. So 
again, would depend on the severity of the injury, obviously, but what are the sort of rehab treatments that are available for someone who has suffered a concussion? I would say that it's often people that are experiencing those persistent or prolonged symptoms Mm -hmm. that benefit from engaging with an interdisciplinary rehabilitation team and participating in therapies. And what this team might look like would be different for each person and their needs. It would be guided by their symptoms, but their team might include physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, social workers, counselors, or psychologists. And their team may also have a physician like myself, a physiatrist, or perhaps a family physician or a sports medicine physician. So physical therapy in what sense? Someone's having difficulty with the control of their limbs or something? So physiotherapists after concussion will often help people with visual disturbances. So they may have light sensitivity, blurry vision, double vision. They will help with vestibular dysfunction, so balance impairments, Hmm. dizziness, vertigo, people who have difficulty resuming physical activity and exercise. So they help with a variety of physical difficulties after the injury. We've been talking, of course, about how a concussion affects the individual who suffered the injury. What about their family and their caregivers, Dr. McKenzie? I mean, surely there, there must be implications for the people near around the injured person. Absolutely. As you pointed out, you know, there's the individual who's impacted by their injury. But I think the way that individual is impacted leads to secondary impacts on the people around that person. So I alluded to the fact that there can be personality changes. And certainly whenever anyone has a change in their personality, that's going to naturally impact their relationships. Mm -hmm. We all live in relationship with the people around us. So not only has the individual experienced physical changes that can change the way they live their day-to-day life and the way someone lives their day-to-day life naturally impacts the people around them too, but then the way they relate to those people is changed. And those relationships that you depend on so heavily when you're experiencing illness or trauma, they can become unsteady as well. And then that can also create naturally feelings of depression or anxiety when you don't feel that support network around you that you're used to or that you feel that you need. So certainly Hmm. brain injury in and of itself can affect mood. But then there's also because of the way the brain injury affects the person, people can develop depression and anxiety because of those changes as well. And then that obviously impacts their community of people that are around them, both the people that live with them as well as the people that they engage with day to day. So it's just as important for the family and the caregivers to understand the consequences and symptoms of concussion as the persons who suffered the injury, perhaps. Absolutely. And uh, often in my clinic, patients will bring a friend, family member with them, and they often find it quite helpful as they learn more about what the injury is and how it's affecting the person and to receive that education in clinic with myself as well as the patient and learning more about concussion helps them better support their loved one in their recovery as well. Many of my patients will tell me that it's an invisible injury and that people around them don't necessarily know how to help or say that they look fine. So why can't you do X, Y, and Z? And 
I think the more awareness we raise about concussion and the way it impacts people will allow our communities to be more understanding and more supportive of people that are recovering post-concussion. And when we are in a supportive community, we all do better. So that supportive community is going to help our patients recover more quickly and more fully as well. Excellent. Yeah, well made point. And have there been new developments in the treatment of concussions recently and going into the future? Yes, I mean, we're always learning new things about the diagnosis and treatment of concussion. And in terms of new treatments, there's always research going on looking at non-pharmacologic as well as pharmacologic and interventional treatments. So we're always learning new things about ways that we can help our patients recover after their injuries. Right. I mean, a lot of our knowledge, I think, well, layperson's knowledge has come, at least for me, from watching pro sports and an increased focus on the injuries that some of these professional athletes suffer and the long-term effects of them. I guess, can I get you to talk a little bit about that? It's really true, is it, that we've become more aware of the implications of a concussion somewhat recently in the last 10, 20 years? Absolutely. I think some of the big changes, especially in pro sports, but also in even recreational sports and competitive sports is the importance of stopping play mm-hmm. immediately if someone is suspected of having sustained a concussion. We don't want people returning to play in the same game and being at risk of having a second injury shortly after the first. Right. We know that puts people at risk of something called second impact syndrome, which can have very devastating consequences. We also have been, I think, much more careful about ensuring that athletes are engaging in a graduated return to play and they have to progress through different stages of recovery before being able to return to contact gameplay. So we see that in our professional sports as athletes enter into the concussion protocol and need to be cleared by a objective third-party neurologist, for example. And we also see that in our community-based sports teams as well. Maybe I'll ask you about that. You mentioned this second impact syndrome. I assume that's when if you get another concussion while you're still recovering from the first, can that lead to sort of mental difficulties such as perhaps increased chance of dementia down the road years ahead into the future? Well, second impact syndrome is when someone suffers a second concussion very shortly after a first. Right. And it's very rare, but it does result in brain swelling within Mm. the skull and damage structurally to the brain. So we're no longer talking about a concussion. We're talking about a more severe brain injury. And Mm. the consequences from that can be quite different than the ones we consider to be happening from concussion. So it brings that injury into a totally different category. So uh, again, just to remind listeners, we mentioned some of them, but the physical symptoms of a concussion, correct, are headache, nausea, vomiting, blurred or double vision, as you said, problems with balance, dizziness, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to noise. But you also, I mean, you touched on that there are often behavioral, emotional symptoms. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would assume that would what is that, anger or depression? 
Well, it can be different for each person, but people may present with even personality changes. They may describe themselves as being more quick to anger, less patient, more irritable than they would have been before their injury. They may be more quick to experience tearfulness or sadness, or those feelings may be more marked in terms of their intensity than they would have been before. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes people will describe that they fluctuate quite quickly and quite dramatically between different emotional states, which is a change from their pre-injury status. So the types of presentation can be very different and can certainly be consistent with depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms as well. Knowing the consequences of this injury, I guess maybe we can talk briefly about prevention. I'm sure you'd be a, you're a big advocate of, say, helmets. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. There's certainly many sports where helmets are the norm. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, helmets with cycling and things like that. And I personally mm -hmm. talk to all of my patients about the importance of wearing helmets, even when they seem somewhat optional. You see lots of particularly adults riding their bikes without helmets on. But I certainly recommend to all people, but especially my patients who have unfortunately had an injury in the past, that they wear helmets when cycling, that they wear helmets if they're going to return to anything like skiing or horseback riding, mm -hmm. when some people opt not to wear helmets in those in, in those times. Um, so yes, helmets are a big part of preventing repeat injury as well as preventing injury among people who have been fortunate enough not to have a concussion to date. And again, for some people who might, it's possible then you, you've sustained a concussion but aren't aware of it. Is that right? And so it would just sort of heal on its own if you're not doing anything about it? Yeah, I would say that some people maybe aren't aware early after an injury that what they've had is a concussion. You know, people may initially brush it off and you know, assume that they're going to feel better the next day or in the right. days that follow. And when they don't, that's when they start to realize that maybe something is wrong. Or if they were involved in a more severe accident and had other injuries that understandably drew their attention earlier, such as a fracture or something like that. And then maybe as weeks go by and say their fracture is healing, they start to realize that, oh, you know, I, I just haven't been feeling myself. And there's some other things going on that I wasn't able to pay close attention to initially, but are becoming more obvious to me now as I'm recovering from my other injuries. So, so yes, you're right. I think not always is it obvious right away. And it's sometimes when people look back on the incident that it's a bit more clear to them that they did sustain a concussion at that time and that it is something that they need to seek attention for to help them with their recovery. Right, sure. And what about age? I mean, would the symptoms and the consequences of a concussion be more severe for a child or, say, a senior, as opposed to someone in the mid-age range? Well, certainly, I think the way that they can impact people can be different, you know, mm. especially in children. They're still learning and developing and growing, and sustaining a concussion can set them back or make returning to learn more difficult. So often in the pediatric or adolescent group, and even in young adults, many of those people have goals of returning to school or returning to their studies. So the focus of rehabilitation can be a bit different. Whereas in the adult group, we're often talking about return to work. And then in the aging population, we will be looking at return to you know leisure activities 
and their day-to-day activities and what we call instrumental activities of daily living. So managing their household, managing their finances. So I think it changes the focus of rehabilitation depending on what life stage someone is at. Sure. In your experience, I mean, what are some of the most common causes of concussion that you see? Certainly the most common causes of concussion that I see would be falls, which are particularly common in children, but also in older adults. Mm -hmm. And motor vehicle accidents were another very common cause. But also, you know, sports, unfortunately, assault or Mm. other violent mechanisms can underlie the injury and really any event where your head is struck against or struck by an object. So there can be quite a number of mechanisms behind the injury, but those would be the most common ones that I see in my practice. Right. So for someone who's suffered a concussion, whether they went to the hospital and had it confirmed or not, and are now experiencing some of the symptoms that we talked about, the headache, the vomiting, maybe the double vision, balance issues, and so forth, where do they go? How do they get treatment from someone like yourself? So certainly the first place to go would be their family physician, if they're fortunate enough to have one. They'll be able to do an initial assessment and take a look at how that person is recovering during the initial days and weeks. And it's usually someone who isn't recovering, as would be expected, that gets referred to see someone like myself. So usually these patients are managed in the community by our excellent family physicians and only those who don't recover as expected or who have risk factors for developing those persistent or prolonged symptoms will get referred to see myself as well as our allied healthcare professional team. Right. So again, they would be referred to the, is it the spinal cord injury and brain injury rehabilitation program at St. Joe's. Yeah, so at Parkwood Institute, we have the Outpatient Acquired Brain Injury Rehabilitation Program. So within that program, a patient may access the physiatry clinic and or the outpatient rehabilitation resources like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech-language pathology, social workers, and others. So, uh, Dr. McKenzie, I assume then that some of the post-injury rehab involves doing less or doing things slower? Is that part of the whole pacing and planning program? Can you expand on that a little bit more? So there is a lot of recommendations that people hear where they're told to rest after their injury. And I would say that we're moving more towards a recommendation of relative rest. So some people hear that they should be doing nothing, they should be in a quiet, dark room, wearing earplugs, wearing sunglasses, avoiding anything that makes them feel unwell. And we certainly encourage people to move away from that. So we want people to be able to do as much, particularly of their day-to-day activities, as possible. Because the longer that someone avoids those activities, the harder it can be to get back to them. And also the more used our brain and body gets to doing less. So we really want to gradually return to our day-to-day activities, gradually return to exercise, gradually return to socializing, learning, going to school, going to work, doing our recreational activities. But at the other end of the spectrum, doing too much of those things 
can really set people back in their recovery. So, for example, exercising too much can really cause a flare in someone's symptoms. Mm. And, you know, because they went on a 30-minute walk, they then can't do anything for a number of days. Whereas if they had perhaps stopped at 15 or 20 minutes, their symptoms may have dissipated over the course of the following hour rather than lasting for days. Mm. So it's really about learning where each individual's limit is what activities will push them over that limit and how much of that activity, and then gradually bumping up against that limit over time and seeing that limit lift and give them more room for the things that they need to do and the things that they love to do. And that's how we move people through their recovery and allow them to return to all of those meaningful activities that are so important in our lives. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about this uh, pacing and planning aspect of the treatment? Absolutely. So when we talk to patients about pacing and planning, we're trying to help them stay below their threshold of activity where their symptoms get worse. Hmm. Okay. So that's often one of the hallmark features of persistent post-concussion symptoms is that our patients report that if they do too much of certain things, that's when their symptoms get quite significant and can last for days at a time and cause mm. further disability. So pacing and planning is about organizing your day and organizing your week so you don't do too much mm. of any one thing that will worsen your symptoms. So you try to stay below that threshold where the symptoms get worse so that you can be relatively more productive than if you push your limit and get a big flare of your symptoms and then find yourself down for a number of days. So it's really about organizing, taking time, not doing too much, taking regular breaks, and pacing things out throughout the week to manage symptoms. You know, following a concussion, it can sometimes surprise people about the things that they find difficult or the things that bring on their symptoms. So I, I really encourage each person to reflect on the types of things that bring on their symptoms and factor those things into their plans for pacing through the week. For example, I have many patients that struggle with driving or even being a passenger in a car. Many patients will tell me that they have trouble going into the grocery store or into the mall or other shopping environments because there's a lot of visual stimuli, lots of auditory stimuli. It's a very busy place, so that can bring on a lot of symptoms for people. So it isn't always the things that naturally come to mind, intense physical activity. It can be our day-to-day -day activities that can be problematic for people following concussion. Mm. And what about heading into the future? Is there any research or new treatment or any new developments on the horizon um, in the treatment and recognition of concussions? Well, I think it's hard to tell exactly what might be on the horizon because it hasn't been published as of yet. Um, mm -hmm. But there is lots of research even going on here at St. Joseph's Healthcare. I mean, you asked a question about age differences and mm -hmm. does it impact people in different age groups differently. And I'm currently working on a study with a colleague of mine, Dr. Anita Christie, looking at age-related differences in the way that concussion impacts people. So hopefully we'll be learning more about that through that study. 
And I'm also working on a project with a colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Robinson, as well as Dr. Lisa Fisher through the Fowler Kennedy Sport Medicine Clinic. And we're looking to better understand the factors that put someone at a higher risk of having those persistent and prolonged symptoms. Because we think that if we can pick those people out early after injury, perhaps we can treat them differently and change their course of recovery so that they recover more like someone without risk factors and have a shorter period of recovery. Okay. Well, I think we've uh, hopefully equipped our listeners with a little more information about what to do if you get a hit on the noggin and are experiencing some problems. I want to thank you for stopping by today, Dr. McKenzie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. Thank you.